0: Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter day Saints be better prepared to lead. To see a full scope of the Leading Saints content, visit leadingsaints.org and check out more episodes of this podcast, written articles about leadership for Latter day Saints, and even the many topic focused libraries. A great place to start would be the Liberating Saints Library, where you'll find 25 plus interviews related to helping individuals overcome struggles with pornography. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747, and we'll reply back with a link for easy access. I always enjoy interviewing Emeritus General Authorities or Release General Officers of the Church. They have such a unique perspective serving in these callings, where they have seen the Church function in so many places around the world. I recently sent a random message through Facebook Messenger to Elder J. Devin Cornish. I didn't think he would receive it, let alone reply to it. Imagine my surprise when he did reply to my message and agreed to allow me to conduct an interview with him for the Leading Saints podcast. I was also pleased to have Dan Duckworth join me as co-host for this interview. Dan is a former guest of the podcast and a member of the Leading Saints board of directors. Now a little background on Elder Cornish. Dr. J. Devon Cornish is an emeritus member of the 1st Quorum of the Seventy. He was sustained as a General Authority Seventy on April 2nd, 2011, and granted emeritus status on October 2nd, 2021. A newborn intensive care physician, he was a professor, chairman, and later vice chairman of the Department of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. He was also president and chief executive officer of the Pediatric Practice Plan at Emory Healthcare. In the church, Elder Cornish has served in numerous callings, including full-time missionary in the Guatemala El Salvador Mission, Bishop, stake president, Area 70, and president of the Dominican Republic Santiago Mission from 2003 to 2006. During his tenure as a general authority, Elder Cornish served as a counselor and as president of the Caribbean area, headquartered in the Dominican Republic, as a counselor in the North American Southwest Area Presidency, and as an assistant executive director of the Church History Department and of the Correlation Department, among other assignments at church headquarters. Elder Cornish and his wife Elaine are the parents of six children and 32 grandchildren. Elaine Cornish passed away from cancer in June of 2019. Elder Cornish married Roseanne Brown in May of 2021 and they live in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today I'm in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, in the home of Elder Cornish. How are you? I'm
1: fine and healthy and happy. How are you? I'm uh, very
0: good. I'm uh, grateful for this opportunity, and we also have a uh, board of directors, Dan Duckworth, here who's listening in, and maybe will help us with some questions, right? Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Awesome, Elder Cornish. I mean, recently, I don't know what the correct term—released uh, emeritus status from the the first corner of the seventy. How long
1: were you serving in that in that role? Well, I was in area seventy. Twice, actually, beginning in 1999, and then was called as General Authority in 2011, hmm. released in 2021.
0: Wow. And as those calls come, it's just, you know that, uh, you know, I and mean, that's just what you're going to do until you're 70, generally speaking, right?
1: The 70 serve as 70 till they're 70. Nice. Nice.
0: And maybe just give us a little bit of your background as far as early upbringing uh, and uh, then maybe what led to your first leadership role that you can remember.
1: Well, uh, born in Salt Lake City, just near the Rose Park area. Lived there till I was 10. We decided to move to Farmington then because they ran I-15 through our kitchen. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was called as a deacon's quorum president when I was 12 or 13 and grew up in Georgia from age 13 when we moved from Farmington and had many leadership opportunities in the church because in the mission field in those days. There weren't all that many members, and so everyone contributed in one way or another and had experiences like everyone else, I think, serving in the church and speaking in meetings, the kind of wonderful leadership training that's intrinsic to Latter-day Saint experiences. I served a mission in Guatemala and El Salvador and had opportunities there. I've had a number of opportunities in medicine to be in leadership positions. I was a newborn intensive care physician but spent my entire career in medical schools. And so, I had some administrative leadership responsibilities. There, I was ultimately the chairman of the Department of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, and the president and chief executive officer of the medical practice plan, which was a fairly large, multi-million-dollar pediatric practice. Have served in the church in most every leadership position there is that a guy can serve in. I've never been a society president, <laughs> but I've served in. I was a bishop three times and a stake president in Area 70 twice and a mission president and general authority. So mm-hmm. I have sat across the desk and in the living rooms with many, many wonderful people trying to encourage them as they strive to live with the challenges of life and follow Christ.
0: Yeah. And you've uh, prepared some awesome uh, points that we'll, we'll get into as far as uh, various leadership principles or points that as you, with hindsight, look back and see that was maybe most helpful for you. I'm curious, was it the first time uh, called as bishop? Was that maybe the first heavy, heavy leadership calling that you experienced in the church?
1: No, I think the first heavy responsibility was as an elders quorum president in inner city Baltimore. Oh, wow. During medical school, that was the learning experience. 152 families in the inner city.
0: Nice. How would you describe that general that experience?
1: Well, that was an introduction to several key principles, like the fact that if you are concerned with the church, you're complaining about the church, you need to realize that you are the church, mm. and that if you're hoping for someone to solve some problem in the church, get a mirror, because the person who is likely to need to solve the problem is probably you.
0: Yeah, yeah. In Baltimore, as far as, like, how did that manifest as in your role as as Quorum president? Were there some dynamic approaches you had to take to for a unique area?
1: A whole lot of wonderful people, but many poor people in the inner city. Who were good, faithful Latter day Saints, but having significant challenges in their lives. Mm. Many of the people in our quorum were graduate students going to one professional school in Baltimore or another with very tight schedules and tight finances. There were a number of established families and established couples. So the dynamic across demographics, across socioeconomics, across educational strata led us all to realizing that we were in that together and that. Mm no one was less responsible for helping other people than any other.
2: This principle you brought up of of look in the mirror, let's let's call it the look in the mirror principle. It's such a provocative idea. And and I'm wondering about those in the church who feel like the church is a very structured, hierarchical, role-based organization. They might feel these complaints or they wish things would be different, but they don't have that sense of courage or license to solve a problem that they see because they don't feel like they're in a position to do that. What are your thoughts for them? There are two
1: principles that I think help a lot. The first is that problems have an origin. They have roots mm. and they grow up and manifest themselves ultimately as good or bad fruit. But batting at the leaves of problems or even liking or not liking the fruit rarely makes anything different. You have to get to the roots. Mm. Most problems are solved Closest to their roots by the people in the problems. When I was serving in the Caribbean Area Presidency out of Santo Domingo, in the Dominican Republic, we worked and worked to develop an area plan under the direction of the 12 and the Presidents of the 70. Our original plan was 52 pages long. Oh, wow. They encouraged okay. us to get it down to a few pages. <laughs> Ultimately, we got it down to two words. The Caribbean Area Plan was responsible and converted. In that order, it turns out that whatever Someone is wrestling with until they accept that they are responsible for their financial, their health, their emotional, their relationship, their spiritual well being. No one else can help them very much. The second principle is that we really came to earth fundamentally to be changed in our natures so we can go home to live with God and belong there because we're like Him hmm. and like Jesus Christ. But you can't become converted until you're first responsible. You have to first say, I am responsible for my conversion. When a person is converted, and has learned to be responsible, they bless other people, and they become stable and happy themselves. But unless you're responsible and converted, you're not much help to others, and you're not easy for others to help.
2: What I think I hear you saying there is, Oftentimes, when we complain about the way things are, we're looking to the church to change. And it's you, you're kind of saying, first look at yourself. There are things you can do to take responsibility for your experience, whether it's in the church or in life with your finances, with your health, with your spirituality. There are things you can do to own your own experience and become converted. And then the other issues that you might have had, they might actually not become or be issues anymore at that point.
1: You know, the gospel is so simple it's really just two things. The savior already worked out the immortality part of God's purposes. The eternal life part has really only two key components. For me to be changed in my heart, sanctified. For me to be sealed in my generations, sanctified and sealed. That's the whole cost. Well, there actually is a third part. To help other people become sanctified Hmm. and sealed. Yeah, do the same process. That's all there is. Yeah. Kurt, I want to I
2: just hit Please. on one more thing that Elder Cornish brought up here that I think is useful for our audience. The idea that as an area presidency, you did so much thinking that you could develop a 52-page document, <laughs> yeah. but then you continued to do so much thinking that you could reduce that to two meaningful words or mantras. Yeah. I think that's
1: an incredible lesson in and of itself. Yeah. You know, this is the famous quote from the American jurist, Oliver Wendell Holmes who is reported to have said that he would give nothing for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but that he would give his life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Yeah. I love that. That's powerful.
0: And was that a, the typical process with the different area plans you were involved in? They're just, they sort of started really bloated and then you had to, uh,
1: you know, skin them down? Well, part of it depended on what they wanted, you know, oh, okay. how many financial plans and how many building projects and how many oh, yeah, yeah. specific demographic statistics did they want. Yeah, but they came to ask for those in a different format. Yeah, and ask for the area plan to be something for the members. Yeah, so the format changed.
0: And I'm curious not to. I, I tend to go on these tangents, but I remember you know being in a state presidency and being handed this area plan right at a coordinating council, and sort of this feeling of like, all right, like here it is. But I didn't witness the development of it, and so it's sort of hard to maybe digest it in the moment or sit with it. What general advice would you give when it comes to area plans for leaders and in specific areas.
1: And let's not talk just about area plans, but about plans for stakes and wards, yeah. forums and classes and families and businesses and mega corporations and international operations. Yeah. The process is the same. The question is, what is your purpose? What is your process? Who are your people? And what are your fundamental principles? If you're clear about what your process, your purposes are, if you're clear about what processes are appropriate you know who the people are you must know your people yeah and then you apply the principles in consistent credible defensible ways add a little creativity a little prayer a whole lot of counseling together you're likely to succeed yeah yeah that's really
0: helpful i'm curious you know not a lot of people get the opportunity to serve as bishop once and and you had the opportunity to serve as three times i assume with a lot of your traveling with medical school and medical practice and whatnot. That was just the nature of of, uh, your experience. But what what have you learned about that role as bishop being in that role three times?
1: Well, there's some fundamental principles about leadership that may be useful to mention. Love it. I'm going to name six and we can talk about them in any order or not at all. But I think that there are six key principles that have stood out to me. And that goes not only for leadership in the church, but my leadership in a corporate setting, in an academic setting. Mm Mm-hmm. The first principle is, keep the wheels on and the trains running, Hmm. particularly when you become a new leader. The second principle is, don't do dumb things. (laughs) I love it. The third principle is, it's not about you. The fourth principle is, take care of your people. The fifth is, mind the dollars, which applies even in the church. And finally is, nurture, purpose, and joy. So, those are key things. I've learned that have stood out to me. Awesome. Is it useful to talk about it? Yeah, let's jump
0: into number one here. Keep the wheels on and the trains running.
1: You know, we perpetuate the image of the ideal leader as one who's bold, creative, innovative, and charismatic. This moves newly appointed leaders to completely overhaul the leadership team or to reassess the fundamental mission and purposes of the organization and to change the core policies and procedures. Rarely is it appropriate to make any substantive changes in an organization for the first few months. It may be much wiser to spend those initial months encouraging your people, endorsing the institution and its purposes, and praising their performance and their products. Learn who everyone respects, who builds unity among the people, and who makes sure that things get done right. By the way, those people are often not in leadership positions. Sometimes it's the secretaries. Invite corrections and suggestions, including about yourself as a leader. Keep the organization moving forward while you learn the ropes. Value the successes and learn from the failures or predecessors before you start making a lot of changes. It just isn't possible that everyone was doing everything wrong all the time before you came along.
2: <laughs> I, I, I love that. If I could ask a, a follow up question, one of the things that's most provocative in there to me is this idea of getting to know the people and spending even an inordinate amount of time of getting to know them. And you mentioned that you said, you know, you said purpose, process, principles, but when you talked about people earlier, you really emphasize that. What does that look like for a newly called elders quorum president, Relief Society president, bishopric member? What does it look like to really get to know
1: their people? Let me jump to this concept of taking care of your people in general. Awesome. You'll never really have their hearts if they don't believe you've got their backs. Mm. So know your people, learn and remember their names. And as much about them as you can, as quickly as you can. If you can't, Print out a photo directory and spend time memorizing their names and faces and call them by name. Establish salary and promotion policies that are transparent, fair, and motivating in an employed setting. And then try to find ways to help everyone meet their targets. If each of your employees is succeeding individually, they'll see to it that your enterprise succeeds collectively. This is especially true in the church, where it's not an employed setting. But it's not enough for a person to accept a calling. The organization head who supports them and the bishop himself should watch carefully to make sure that all the needed support is provided so the person thrives in the calling and enjoys it. If each person who serves finds joy and fulfillment in their service, the ward will run well. Turnover in callings will be minimal. There will be a feeling of shared purpose and progress among the members. This is especially important for the less active, the needy, and those with challenges in their lives. And those who feel excluded they have to be closely ministered to and nurtured. Now, the problem is that when you stand up and talk in a sacrament meeting, you're talking to the people who came to a sacrament meeting. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we preach how to improve yourself to the people who need least to improve themselves. Hmm. It's not just that we preach to the choir, we almost only preach to the choir. Hmm. A great key to doing though that, though, is that it needs to be done in such a way that it doesn't consume the bishop. If that attentive ministering is done at the levels closest to the person, meaning their family members, their ministering brothers and sisters, and organization leaders, many more people get involved and blessed, and a feeling of love and unity will permeate the ward. Everyone will feel like they matter because they see that everybody else matters too. Hmm. It's been wisely said that the key to the 99 is the one. When the people in the ward, invest their energy and love in the people who most commonly get sidelined, who are feeling like they're on the outside looking in. It doesn't just strengthen those sidelined people. It strengthens everybody else. Because when they see how much you care about those outliers, they say, oh, the bishop must care about me too. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, that's really helpful. And, and I just a few weeks ago, I had a, a brand new bishop reach out to me and he was just, I think, <laughs> as a brand new called bishop you're just looking to everybody for any advice as, as you step into this role and you know that's sort of where i i went with the advice is if you can help each individual in your ward have a personal interaction with their bishop as soon as possible so they feel like hey he knows me like he knows my name he's talked with me that can go a long way and especially in the context i love that that emphasis on on inactives you know and reaching out to them and was there any Any tactic or approach that you use to reach out to inactives, whether it's simply being intentional about visits or what else?
1: Well, that's a really insightful and and informed question. You obviously have been around the block of your (laughs) time. This is under the principle that I called it's not about you. Okay. It's hard to be a loyal follower of a bishop or any leader if you can't respect and trust them. And it's hard to trust someone who's primarily in it for his own glory. You have to be sufficiently expert in the business or knowledgeable about the organization and so deeply committed to its purpose and so genuinely, transparently altruistic, you really do care about other people, that the people dare to risk their livelihoods in an employment setting and their careers, or in the church risk their faith on following your leadership. If you aren't transparently and genuinely concerned about other people, it really doesn't matter what else you do right. They're just holding their breath. Until you're released. That is, if I, if I might ask
2: a follow up question there, that is such a, a compelling phrase, genuinely and transparently altruistic. So I, I get the principle of it's not about you, right? It's about them. And so that's the altruistic part of it. And of course, it's got to be real, it's got to be genuine. But tell us more about what you mean by that word, transparently altruistic.
1: I've come to conclude that in settings of leadership where your goal is to improve the people and the organization, the real approach comes down to two things. The only credible motivation is love, mm. real love. And the only effective method is ministering. We think of ministering in the church as a program. It isn't. It's the gospel. Yeah. When you ask, what is the gospel of Christ, and look at his life, it's ministering. You know, in leadership application, the message is, be slow to take credit. Never do things just to get credit, not ever. If you find you're doing something, so someone will see you do it. I intentionally don't do that, even Mm. if it kinda needs to be done. Yeah, yeah. Clarify early on that in any discussion or negotiation, it does not matter who is right. It only matters that we do right. I've used that phrase in the corporate setting countless times. Yeah. And then, you find that sometimes the right and moral thing to do is not what seems to be best to do for the business. But do it anyway. And do it always. And do it so predictably that your leaders will know that they're always safe if they choose the moral high ground. Then on the long run, whether your efforts succeed or fail, all of you will be able to feel good about your efforts and feel comfortable in your own skins. The Savior said, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You can do that in business, but you can do it in too. If the elders quorum president is just out to be seen so that they'll call him into the bishopric, hmm. no one's going to trust and believe him. And they shouldn't. I once worked closely, closely with a leader of a large organization who graduated from the best schools and was talented, articulate, and impressive. But it was pretty clear to a lot of people that his prominence and success were what mattered to him most. Whenever there was an event or an interview, he was up front and center stage. In the end, things went badly and he was allowed to seek a position elsewhere, we'll say. <laughs> His leadership tenure was pretty much a sad and painful time for all of us. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm curious in the, in the church context, I mean, this there's sort of this, uh, this wrestle of, you know, I've been called as the elders quorum president with all this responsibility. I want to make sure I do a good job and, oh, here's the bishop. I'm going to make sure I, you know, communicate to him, maybe not directly through words that yeah, I'm doing a good job. Like, I'm, I'm a good soldier, right? And, and where does it sort of go wrong there? And I'm sure you, as you visited different stakes, maybe you've seen that. I don't know if the story comes to mind or anything like that.
1: Well, I think that there are some questions that are helpful to ask yourself. The first question is, who's talking the most? Hmm. If I'm responsible to teach a class or to hold an interview, if I'm talking to somebody in the hallway, I find it a very helpful question to ask myself, who's doing most of the talking here? Now, sometimes you're explaining a process and you have to just tell them yeah, because they need the information. But most of the time, you're thinking together and you're counseling together and what you're after isn't technical process proficiency. You're after a change of heart and behavior. And if you're talking most, you're learning most. And so I ask myself, who's talking most here? Because frankly, if I'm doing most of the talking, then it's mostly about me. And that should send off alarms in my head and it does. The second question is, are we talking about the real problem or are we talking about the comfortable problem? Almost never does someone seek out their bishop or their religious society president or even their ministering sister and tell them what the real problem is first. Hmm. You test the waters. You with test problem. you can problem, trust them. Yeah. And so you throw out a teaser problem. Hmm. And if the person latches onto that and runs with it, You don't ever get to the real problem because they are performing. They're grandstanding. And if the person says, well, you know, that's an interesting problem. You've obviously thought a good deal about this. What have you thought about it so far? And the one who raised the problem dispenses with it pretty quickly because they have thought about it. And they're ready to go into a little deeper problem because to their surprise, they were listened to. Hmm. They were respected. Their opinion was valued. And before long, they'll come to, you know, what I really need to ask you about is, and then you hear the real problem. Now, bishops can't have interviews that last forever. Yeah, <laughs> And I certainly spent hours I probably didn't need to spend helping people when I probably was helping mostly myself. Sometimes it's appropriate for a bishop to say, brother, I'm so grateful that we have some time together. If this conversation served you the best it could, what would the outcome be? What would you like to see come from our time Mm -hmm. together? And if he throws you an easy problem, you say, I think that's an important thing for us to discuss. Is there anything else? What would you like the result of our conversation to be so that you and the people you care about are best blessed? And often that allows you to both respect them and show them love, but also to get to the real issue earlier on in the conversation, so the interviews aren't quite as long. Mm, Otherwise, we were out our leaders. Yeah, yeah. that's easy to do at times. This is true in business too, by the way. People seek out the boss, and they give you the softball first, and they may leave unsatisfied and even angry, because you didn't listen to them. When the fact is you were listening, but you were listening to what they said, not to what they meant. Yeah, I like to say
2: sometimes we're listening with the wrong ears. Right. If we put on our other ears and we were listening for what they weren't saying, then we could ask those follow-up questions. Um, I want to ask you this question from another angle. So oftentimes we do get leaders in the church or business that are grandstanding, for sure, and so that's why they miss the point or they have the wrong set of ears on in these conversations. But sometimes it is really well-intentioned. They really want to help, and yet there's also a little bit of the ego wrapped in there that they, they don't want this to break on their watch. They're, they're kind of like the doctor who has a patient in the office. And how do you know when to send that patient home and say, take your vitamins and see me next week versus, hey, this is a serious problem and I can't leave
1: you alone right now? That's such an, an astute question, Dan. This is under the heading of what I call, don't do dumb things.
0: Oh, great. Great. Perfect transition. <laughs> I'm glad I'm the one that asked that question. <laughs> right, Dan. <now.
1: laughs> when I was a mission president, our scripture for the mission was 35, five, 13. I'm a disciple, correct? But our second scripture was Jacob 6.12, which says, oh, be wise, what more can I say? My wife and I translated that to, don't do dumb things. Yeah. (laughs) Occasionally a missionary would do something and my wife would turn to me and say, looks like a Jacob 6.12 violation to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I've had a lot to do with helping to develop a new dangerous, invasive, and challenging treatment for intensive care patients who are dying from lung and or heart failure called ECMO, which stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It requires... It's long-term heart and lung bypass. It requires constant attention of a team of highly trained medical professionals, and it allows for very few, if any, mistakes. If the doctor begins to act like he or she is the all-knowing boss who manages and controls everything in that process, it's likely not to go well. So in ECMO, one of our rules was, any doctor who thinks he can do ECMO alone deserves to. Mm. Because it will crash if you do, when the other people lead you to yourself. I think the same thing is true about leading any organization. Don't try to be a one man show, even if you can, and be sure you recognize your coworkers' contributions publicly and often. You know, sometimes you come across a bishop or a stake president who thinks he can run it all. And the worst thing that can happen in an award or a stake is when he's right, when he, in fact he is so talented and so committed and so energetic that he probably can do it all. Yeah. And that's the quickest way to kill a stake or award because the Lord doesn't need the stake president to do it all. The Lord does not look for a man who can do the work of 10 people. He looks for a man who can get 10 people to work. Yeah. So if you want to keep costly mistakes and missteps to a minimum, make sure that the people are organized with as much authority and autonomy as possible, delegated to the lowest levels, and that incentives are in place to recognize and reward them. That includes the emotional and spiritual incentives in the church just as much as it includes the financial and promotion incentives in a business. We talked about the fact that most problems are best solved closest to their sources, but that's especially true in the church. So use your most senior and expert leaders as your advisors. Seek their formal and informal counsel sincerely and often. Seek advice often from any other internal and external sources you can trust. And learn as quickly as you can just who in the organization you can and can't trust the most. Above all, make your Heavenly Father your main source of guidance through frequent prayer. I think that the spot in front of my chair in my office when I was the head of the Department of Pediatrics was worn as any place else, because that's where I had to kneel down (laughs) to learn how to run the department and run the business, as well as the church. It's been wisely said that only a fool learns from his mistakes. A wise person learns from the mistakes of others. Of course, you shouldn't do things that are obviously foolish, but The real challenge is knowing before you do them, what things are going to look foolish after the fact. There are times when you have to take some risks, but if you're the only one who thinks a particular risky decision is a good idea, don't do it. Mm. So one of the great secrets to not doing dumb things is to not go it alone, to recognize that you have limited insights and information, and to lean heavily and sincerely on the counsel of others, and then see that they get recognized publicly and frequently.
0: Yeah. And I, I appreciate that because what my mind went to is sometimes we get so petrified by this idea of I don't want to do anything dumb that we then limit our innovation or seek deeper inspiration or revelation about thinking outside the box for our specific area. And, and so we just sort of shrink and try and stay in the lines. But I love this advice of you know just making sure as you counsel about it, are you the only you know rogue guy that's, that wants to go for this idea? And that's the, the beauty of counsels, right? Any other advice to help? Stimulate innovation while also not doing anything dumb.
1: You know, we had a storm here a few days ago. We're at a higher elevation and it dumped lots of ice and snow on our very steep driveway. Hmm. It's My, a very steep driveway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My wife said, put on your yaks tracks. The yaks tracks are a kind of an elastic web with wire run around the strands that goes over the sole of your shoes. It works amazingly well. It's not an ad for the company, but there are a lot of brands that <laughs> do the same thing. Yeah. They're cleats that don't ruin your floor in the house, though so that's not what they're intended for, but really give you traction out on the ice and snow. Now think about it. How much did it cost to produce those? How much graduate school did it take to invent those? That when somebody sat down in a corporate boardroom and said, boss, I've got this incredible idea, and they brought it out, showed the prototype to people. I expect that everyone sitting around that table looked at that prototype and said, slapped their foreheads and said, why didn't I think of that? What a great idea. (laughs) One of the true signs of a great innovation is that response. The people around the table say, why didn't I think of that? What a great idea. When you're innovating, when you're in need need of real progress breakthroughs, find solutions that have that response. When you find solutions to which the response is, uh, yeah, that really sounds like a good idea, boss. (laughs) You're in trouble.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. Dan, did you have something?
2: Yeah, so I think on this um, idea, you know, don't don't do dumb things, right? Jacob 4-6. I think that a lot of times our bishops are really worried that the stake president will think they've done a dumb thing. And then in turn, the stake presidents are really worried that the area president will think they've done a dumb thing. And so they become much more conservative or risk averse in how they approach things, which leads them to really struggle with this idea of delegation and empowerment that you just talked about. So I found it fascinating that you talked about find out who you can trust and who you can't trust, which my question for you is what if you discover as a bishop or any president that your first counselor isn't somebody you can really trust with certain assignments or responsibilities? What do you do in that case?
1: That's such an insightful question. Well, release him, right? No, you don't. <laughs> because one of the most important things any leader does is train other leaders. What you do is you treat him the way the Savior treated his apostles. Isn't it fascinating to look at the 12 people the Savior called? He, he had, called Judas. He had a few he couldn't trust, <laughs> at least at the time. Yeah. Well, more precisely, he had a motley crew. A diverse people with strikingly different backgrounds, Matthew, the extremely well-educated publican, one of the most despised people in the entire society, who wrote the gospel that has the depth of Old Testament and scriptural references that could persuade the Jews that doctrinally Christ met all the prophecies, mm-hmm. fulfilled all of the requirements. But Matthew was not the person to lead the church. Peter, the impetuous fisherman who knew the people, who knew the society, who understood how they thought and how they made their livings, had the depth of conversion and the power of personality to make things happen. So you treat your first counselor by saying to yourself, honestly, what things does he really do well? What strengths do I need to lean on? And in what areas does he need counsel and maybe a little correction and some encouragement But the Savior leads by leaning on our strengths and helping us with our weaknesses. If the Lord only leaned on the people he could fully trust, none of us would be in the church. Yeah, that's (laughs) for sure. Yeah. So count on people's strengths and help them to strengthen their weaknesses. Yeah. And include at every level as many people as possible by counting on their strengths and minimizing their weaknesses. Well, I love in, in how you've described that, because
2: oftentimes you might feel a little, a little isolated if, you've, if the Lord has given you counselors that you learn through experience, their strengths aren't necessarily always the strengths that you need. But in what you described in your description of this principle, was that there are others that may not actually even be called in those positions that can still advise you that you can still look to, you can still lean on them as you're not giving up on your, the people who've been called to serve with you.
1: I was in a senior leadership position with those kinds of people surrounding me with varied strengths and weaknesses. And there was an old high priest who had been in a number of positions, was a little rough in his manners, but absolutely, absolutely, committed, converted, and trustworthy. And I could go to him and say, okay, what's really going on here? (laughs) What am (laughs) I missing? What do you recommend? And get good counsel. When I was in business leadership, I had a few secretaries who'd been there a long time, who understood the organization and its principles and its people, and who behind the scenes, often working unpaid hours after the day was over, kept things running and made sure things were done right. When I began to figure out who those people were, I'd seek them out and say, okay, Leslie, what's really going on here? What am I missing? Mm. What do you suggest? And they always demurred. Oh, boss, I can't, I don't wanna criticize, I don't wanna name names, I don't wanna get anybody in trouble. I'd say, cut the slack. (laughs) (laughs) What do you suggest? And they would give me wise and effective counsel every time.
0: Yeah, those are really valuable people. To have, you know, to sort to to of get to the, the point of it.
2: Yeah. Know. I've had that experience. Even working with the youth in the church, you can find those young people who seem to have a comprehension of the social systems and the dynamics that are going on. And and even though they may seem inexperienced in life in general, you can go to them and say, help me understand what's really happening here that's right. because I'm this old guy that's uh, disconnected from this. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. Tell me what to do here. Yeah. And they'll say, do you really want to know? <laughs> yeah. <that's> right. <laughs> yeah. And
0: then, and then even they feel more like they feel heard. They feel like, well, you know, my opinion counts here and they want to be more involved, you know? So.
1: And then you say to them, go back and keep working on the problem for your end. You're making great, great contributions. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: What other principle have we not dove into yet
1: on your list of six here. Well, we haven't talked about minding the dollars. Awesome. This is something that we don't talk about in the church, but we talk about in business, but we don't always talk about it well. This is true even if you're working in a not-for-profit. If the dollars go badly, your leadership tenure will be short and sad, period. If you're a business, find ways to regularly channel at least some of your financial success back to your employees. Financial rewards send the message that you care about them and their families. That's not lost on them. In the church, financial mismanagement leads to spiritual danger. Rarely do leaders get into financial difficulties intentionally. So get really capable people to manage these matters. See that everyone follows the established protocols and observe all the checks and balances, even if you think they're trivial or unnecessary. And yes, I could cite examples, but I think a word of the wise is sufficient. Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful.
0: And I'm curious, you know, I was a bishop in uh, the inner city in South Salt Lake and with a heavy welfare responsibility there. Any, you know, from your experience as a general authority, any advice or perspective you could give on, you know, mind the dollars when it comes to fast offerings and, and helping the poor and needy?
1: Yes. It's sad but true that in your most sincere and loving attempts to help people, you often make their situations worse. Mm. One of the words we feared most in the Caribbean was entitlement. Many of the very poor people in very poor places are regularly recipients of help from other places. And they come to depend on it. They come to expect it. They come to believe they deserve it. Which absolutely abolishes any incentive, any personal development and progress on their parts. Sadly, there are people who believe they were meant to be poor. There are people who believe they're meant to be unimportant. Hmm. And they come to believe that other people were meant to take care of them. And that absolutely paralyzes both parties. The help keeps them from growing. And the helper comes away feeling like he's better than they are. He's smarter. And he's not in their position because they really are lesser people. So the helper comes away damaged spiritually, and the helped person comes away damaged spiritually. So you help people to help themselves. And there are a few key questions here. Number one, is this a relief situation or is this a development situation? You know, I'm from the South where we just expect between June and December to carve out a few weekends where we'll get in our SUVs with our friends and our chainsaws and go help get trees out of people's roofs after they've been hit by hurricanes. Mm. You don't stop and check a temple recommend when you get a, reef, a tree out of somebody's roof. You don't <laughs> right. even care if they you just help. right? And in relief situations, that's what you do. But the more common situation is the development okay. situation where you're trying to help someone grow and learn and become independent. And so you to ask some questions like, how much responsibility does this person have for getting themselves into the situation? Because until they become responsible, nothing else you do is gonna lead to long-term change. Are you doing for them something that they can and should do for themselves, in which case you should not do it or you should do it together? Hmm. Are you increasing their capacity to help themselves? This is something the Savior did so marvelously. Do you think of any situations in the Scriptures where all the people who were asking alms, begging in the streets, commonplace in Jesus' era, ever got help from Jesus? Can you think of a single time in the Scriptures where he gave something to a beggar? I can't find a single one. Yeah,
0: Wow, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. But what he did do is heal people. Because often the people who were begging the streets were lame or blind or otherwise disabled. And he healed them so that he could increase their capacity to care for themselves. Now, the Lord doesn't generally give us the gift of healing people so that their problems go away. But most of the time, that would not heal them. It would only make them healthy. Yeah, The healing is a fundamental self-esteem, courage, and capacity issue. We can deal with those. If we follow the Savior's example about how to help the poor, we will find that most of the time what we're doing is helping them to help themselves.
0: Yeah, and, and I love that concept, you're really enabling them in a positive way by and, right. and sitting with that question, how do I enable this person to actually heal what they're dealing with to some
1: extent? Yeah, right? yeah. be careful about the Secret Santa. You may well leave that person feeling like they are less, they are the recipients, they are looked down on. And you may well leave the people who helped feeling like they're the people who are better, who are richer, who are smarter. In both cases, it's false. And the approach to the help needs to be reconsidered.
2: Do you have something to add? I, I did. I, I love this topic of mind the dollars because it's not something that we talk a lot about in a church context. In a business context, we talk about fiduciary responsibility. We have boards of directors or boards of governors who are responsible to make sure that the finances are well managed. We don't really have that set up in the ward or stake structure.
1: Well, we do. We have auditing committees and we have, There we go. And often the ecclesiastical leaders feel like those things are a nuisance and then unnecessary and that someone else needs to worry about it. It's not uncommon for the stake auditor to come, about, come around and find out that The bishop isn't going to show up for the interview Mm. because he just didn't think it was important. Again, any time we fail to properly administer the funds of the church, we put ourselves and others in grave
2: spiritual danger. And when I hear you talking about that in the individual context, my mind immediately went towards the idea that in our ward context, it didn't used to always be this way, but for those of us these days, we just get a budget. The money just magically appears and we're <laughs> we're almost as a collective in danger of the same spiritual peril that you described for the
1: individual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We we're entitled to this. The church owes us this money for our activity and for our social and Yeah. That just came from members. I, I don't know where you think it came from. Yeah, right, right. The the churches. I was growing up in Georgia. We had a very, very small chapel. In those days we built phased buildings. We lived in a phase one chapel, little bitty building. We wanted a bigger building. The congregation was growing. As I recall, the local congregation had to raise 30% of the cost of the new building, which was millions. And we were a little poor congregation. There's no way we could do this. We fired the janitor, and we became the janitors. Mm. And we took care of the grounds, and we sold light bulbs and Christmas trees and washed cars. Interestingly, when we did those things, like the car wash, it was mostly... The Cornishes and a few other active families and their kids who brought their cars, washed their cars, put the money in the box, and then drove their cars home. I learned this is the only church where you can pay to wash your own car. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the only one, but that was the yeah, yeah. The point was exactly that. We are the church. The money of the church, the resources of the church are not something we're entitled to. They're something we're responsible for.
2: Yeah, we had a I was serving as a state clerk or or rather we had a newly called state president who then called me to serve as a state clerk and I got to watch how intensely focused he was on sound financial management and knowing where our dollars were going and I don't know if he ever said this to me but I sort of developed the perspective that he wants to do really great things with this money. And so he's being very careful about not wasting it on things that don't need to be, that aren't even value added, including sometimes in some cases, welfare experiences where the money is just kind of funneling out the window here, because he's saying, we want to, we want to use the money we've been blessed with to create really meaningful experiences for our members. Yeah. To build
1: people, not just to maintain traditions. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah.
0: And the traditions is often that, that gravitational force that you're pushing against, right? Because yeah. this is how we've always done it. It's and You got to give us better. that activity because it's got decades of tradition, right? That's right.
1: Yeah, and uh, that's helpful.
0: Should we go with the final one here?
1: The final part that I thought would be useful to share is nurture, purpose, and joy. Even people who are well remunerated will eventually begin to look for other opportunities if they don't find deep-seated meaning and joy in what they're doing. Conversely, people remain wholeheartedly engaged in a cause that means a lot to them, even if their salaries are low compared to the market, to a certain limit, of course. If you want your people to be intensely loyal and radiantly happy, nurture frequently that sense of purpose in your shared cause and help all your people find joy in its pursuit. In our Latter-day Saint culture, we're very familiar with this concept from the dedicated service we render in our local callings, especially from the service and sacrifices given by our full-time missionaries and general authorities and officers. But similarly, I spent virtually my whole professional career being underpaid and working with many highly qualified medical school physicians who were also underpaid mm. compared to the doctors in the community. We often worked long hours in difficult circumstances and gave our whole hearts to what we were doing because we loved it, and we believed in it. I spent a good deal of my time working at Grady Memorial Hospital, deep in the ghetto environment of inner city Atlanta. All the doctors who worked there were medical school faculty members, and all were underpaid for what they were doing compared to the market. Their patients were poor Often seriously ill, and sometimes not easy to work with. But the doctors came back shift after shift, year after year. They did it because, their, in their hearts, they were missionaries serving a cause, the cause of human kindness and compassion. And for the most part, they loved it. The meaning and value they found in that work couldn't be replaced by larger salaries. To the degree you can frame hard work onto a compelling cause, You'll win both the hearts and the backs of your people. And they'll thank you for the privilege.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. And really, that's that the core of leadership is nurturing that, that purpose and joy because everything else gets a lot easier when everybody's engaged in that purpose,
1: right? There is no such thing as a job that's fun all the time. Hmm. There are days when every job is tedious and maybe even a little painful. <laughs> but if what you're doing has meaning... If it eases someone's suffering, if it makes the world a better place, you'll find joy in going back to doing it, even on the tedious and tiresome days. Yeah, Yeah. sometimes the the purpose is there, but leaders don't have the insight to identify it, to highlight it, and to make it the focus of why people come to work. That can be the difference between a great leader who gets great results, and another leader in the same organization for whom nothing seems to go well. The first one focuses on purpose. The second one focuses on process.
2: Yeah, I do a lot of uh, teaching and coaching in leadership and we talk a lot about the difference between being a problem solver and being a purpose finder or a purpose creator. And that's kind of the key distinction. And I think a lot of times people who are, are in management responsibilities, whether that's at work or at church or even at home, they get so tied into the tasks Right, so you said your first principle is gotta keep the trains running, right? And they let that become so much the focus that they themselves have lost sight that this is meaningful work, that instead they're deriving meaning from you know the execution of a program or keeping a tradition alive or something like that.
1: Let me tell you a story. Love it. A three-year-old and a five-year-old fighting just outside the kitchen in earshot of mom, for whom they're putting on this performance, by the way, <laughs> who is busy in the kitchen. Now, if I walk in that scene, I will figure out who did what to whom, whose fault it is, who started it, and who needs to get punished. My wife would turn to the kids after they'd about done enough and say, Who wants to make brownies? Of course they want to make brownies. They immediately get engaged in that and have a wonderful time. And the truth is, neither one of them could remember in the least what they were fighting about in the first place, nor did they care. Because in truth, it didn't matter what they were fighting about, they were mostly fighting because they were bored.
2: Yeah, or mm-hmm. hungry, yeah.
1: or didn't get a good night's sleep, or just didn't feel like they were being appreciated and respected and, and valued in the family the way they hoped they would be. Yeah, The truth is that every organization is loaded with problems that richly deserve not to be solved. They do not deserve our time or attention, and they don't deserve a solution. They deserve to be passed over by purpose.
2: Okay, so let's take this to an organizational setting in the church. Let's say that a, a bishop has a young women's president and a group of parents who are at odds with each other, and the parents think she's doing it wrong, and and she's wrestling with them for control of the program, and they're kind of going back and forth over weeks and months. What's the brownie equivalent of <laughs> of stepping into that situation, whether you're the bishop or not? It's just
1: an example. Like what what's the brownie solution there? It's a great great example because the question that's eating up the goodwill is process. You aren't doing this right. You aren't doing this the way we've always done it. You are not doing this the way we think we should do it. If you can get back to purpose and say, what's best for these kids? What do we want them to become? What kinds of experiences will help them to become that way? That allows everybody to let go of the process questions and get back to the purpose question. And it isn't even which activity should we pursue? It's what development, what kinds of beings we want these young people to become, almost never in life, is the process, the purpose. The purpose is about becoming like the Savior, so we can go home to God and stay there because we belong there. And if we say it to the parents, we recognize there's been some disagreement about how we've been doing things. And we expect that there is much of wisdom and love involved in those disagreements because you want your children to grow up to be the kinds of people who are even better than we are. What kinds of understandings, what kinds of insights and inspiration will they need to have to become those kinds of people? What kinds of growth and service and work experiences do you think will help them have those feelings and understandings? How can we Build that into our curriculum, and how can we engage them in that design process, but for that purpose, and that allows them to let go of all the other past processes, focus on the purpose, engage the youth, and do something that may be entirely different. Then you'd say, "Is this consistent with the the handbook and it almost always will be sometimes a little tweaking, but almost always will be.
2: Mm. It's almost like, I mean, the phrase you used was this problem doesn't deserve to be solved. It doesn't deserve our time and our energy to solve it, right? So we don't have to get to the bottom of it. We don't have to assign blame. We can actually just redirect the conversation back to why we're all here, take us back to shared identity, shared purpose, shared values, because we all want that. Whether you're the parents or the young women's leader, you all want the same thing, right? And so if you can just start making brownies with them, yeah. then all of a sudden it doesn't matter. And then a little bit of trust as well, that the gospel is true and the Savior's atoning power is real and, and it can heal. And when people reconnect to purpose, they'll probably also want to reach out and
1: apologize. This is called the fine art of changing the subject. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great. And there's sort of like this recalibration that's happening, right? Yeah. And reengaging people on the true purpose you know, that you talked about. That What are we trying to do here? We're all on the same team rather than, well, I'm the bishop, so I get the you know final vote here, and this is what we're doing, and just be happy with it. But that recalibration is really important.
1: Yeah, but it comes back to the importance of not who is right, but that we do right. That's really helpful.
0: All right, I just have some some random questions that I always love asking former leaders, former general authorities. You know, you've had these opportunities to speak in so many settings, especially general general conference. Preparing a talk, what general advice would you give to a leader who has to prepare talks a lot?
1: I don't know that I can speak for all the general authorities. But right, right. No, I'll just this is myself. Elder Corners. Yes, that's what I mean. I learned some wonderful things speaking in general conference. When I was in Area 70, my goal was not to ever sit in the red seats up on the podium <laughs> because they have to speak in general conference. Shortly after I was called as general authority, I got assigned to speak in the next conference. I went to all my friends and said, "How do you do this? This is awful." <laughs> and I got the same answer every time. Don't worry about it. You'll think about it, you'll pray about it, you'll study, you'll fast. And when the time comes to write your talk, you'll sit down, the Lord will give you the talk, you'll write it, you'll have a few people review it, and you'll pretty much give it the way the Lord gave it to you. But how do you stand up and give it without being more than a little nervous in front of, you know, 20,000 people sitting right in front of you and 16 million people listening, not to mention the critics of the church who are also listening for every comma. (laughs) And the answer for me was, if you stand at that pulpit And you look out at that congregation and you think about all the unseen listeners and you wonder, oh my goodness, is my bald spot shiny? (laughs) You know, did I get my teeth well flossed? You're dead. Yeah, Because it's all about you. If you look out there and say, the Lord has given me some experiences and some insights might be helpful to someone. How can I magnify this opportunity? be guided by the Lord in such a way that those people he intended for me to be blessed, to bless will in fact be blessed. Then you're not nervous because it's not about you anymore. It doesn't matter about those other things. What matters is that through you, the Lord can bless those people. And I think that's a key, not just to giving talks in conference, but to leadership in general. If a bishop stands up to conduct a meeting and he's saying to himself, I wonder what the people think of me. He's dead. If he stands up and looks out of those people and says, Who does the Lord want me to bless today? How can I help those people out there? Are there specific people to whom I can minister, both in conducting this meeting and in the things he inspires me during the meeting to do for people after the meeting? Then the Lord will bless him. And the truth is, he'll have greater peace and comfort in his calling because he won't spend time thinking about whether the people like him. He'll spend th- time thinking about how the Lord wants to bless them through him. By the way, the most dangerous thing a bishop can do is to want to be like,
0: mm. <laughs> there, there's a million dollar quote right there. <laughs> <laughs> we could start a whole another interview right, right now. <laughs> Expand on that. Like what else comes to mind? Like, cause, cause there is this, cause these are your neighbors. These are your friends. Oftentimes and it's like, I don't want to be the bad guy. Right. Is there any more, any more behind that, that statement?
1: There is the safest thing for a bishop to do is to realize that the Lord loves his children and that he answers to the Lord. If he pleases the Lord, through him the Lord will bless the people. If he pleases the people, he'll be facing the wrong direction and won't receive the guidance or help of the Lord. So the, the bishop faces the Lord, pleading for the people. He doesn't face the people arguing with the Lord on their behalf.
0: Yeah. And and is there a balance to that? Because sometimes I think of some experiences where individuals feel like, man, the the bishop doesn't even see me or the leader doesn't. He just like, it's always his way or the highway because he feels like he's, it's him and the Lord, but I don't even feel seen or heard. So how do you strike that balance?
1: I love the way President Dyering says this. Good inspiration depends on good information. If you really want to look to the Lord on behalf of the people, you better know what's going on with the people. Mm. You better know them and love them. Intimately, yeah. But you're not representing the people to the Lord; you're representing the Lord to the people. Yeah, that's really helpful.
2: Any thoughts on that, Dan? You want to I add? I just think that you know, in in the academic setting, we talk about leadership. Transformational leadership is filled with paradoxes, with yeah. with positive tensions. And I think what Elder Cornish is hitting on is right from the beginning. He talked about know the people, love the people, be in the details, like all those things, right? And then this paradox of not necessarily wanting or needing to please them. Mm -hmm. So you're their servant, not, I don't don't know what I'm saying there with that, but the idea that you have to hold both of those, yeah, right? That is not easy. And I don't think that we would represent or that you would represent that that's easy. I think that's a
1: continual calibration through prayer and interaction and all of that. I was asked to give a talk at BYU-Idaho commencement in July of 2017. And wrestling to know what I could say that helped those young people as they move on with their lives. And I came to two words. They're from John eight. I think it's verse twenty-six or twenty-seven. Jesus says that he did those things that the Father told him. Say those things that the Father said. That's a good thing. You know, do what your mom says. But the first law of obedience is the first law of heaven is obedience, but it's not the last law of heaven. The last law of heaven is consecration. So I think it's in verse 29, the Savior says, I do always those things that please him. What the Savior did was not just what his father told him to do. What he knew would also please his heavenly father. It's the difference between washing the dishes when your mother says you have to and getting up from the table, washing the dishes, drying the dishes, putting the food away, sweeping the floor, and going out to play. One is doing what you're told. The other is doing what would please your mother. Mm -hmm. If the bishop does what the father wants him to do to bless the people in ways that please God, he will still have critics, but that's okay. Because in the end, your goal isn't to please the people, it's to please God. And if you love the people, but seek to please the Lord, the people will be blessed. The yeah. two words are, please God. Yeah, that's really helpful. Going back to
0: the the principle of, you know, it's not about you. Um, I'm curious with your experience going in, going to so many state conferences and whatnot, sometimes naturally in our culture, there's sort of these pedestals that we've created unintentionally and sometimes people, the people surrounding you sort of make it about you like, oh, here's Elder Cornish, the general authority, like, let's make sure he's comfortable, all this like, in those dynamics, how do you help other people not make it about you?
1: Does that make sense? Yeah, you do two things. President Kimball said it eloquently, when the people praise you, don't inhale. Uh-huh. <laughs> And the second part is you turn it right back on them. Hmm. And so the people say, oh, Elder Cornish, it's so good to see you. It's so wonderful to be with the Authority. You say, well, tell me about yourself. Where are you from? What's going on in your life? If they are praising you, they will not go away feeling nourished. If you turn it to them and attend to them and love them and care about them sincerely, they'll feel nourished.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful.
1: That's how the Savior did it. Think of how the Savior yeah. did it. When the rich young man said to him, good master, he said, why callest thou me good? There is none good but God. The Savior immediately turns it back to him. And he doesn't allow him to talk about the Savior, about how good he is. Excellent example. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Dan, any other g- questions in general or do we did we cover oh, a lot lots. Here, right? I've got lots here to take home <laughs> and think about. Yeah, for sure. Really good. So I've got one more question for you, but I'm just curious, now you're released, uh, what's next for for you, Elder Cornish?
1: Well, I'm having a a delightful experience. They've allowed me to teach a class at the University of Utah Institute, and that's been a blessing to me, and I've learned a lot from it. There are obviously some things that I need to do to manage a move and a, a new marriage and the challenges of a big transition in life. It's been an opportunity for me to do some writing and Thinking in ways that have been kind of bubbling underneath the surface for years. And uh, it's remarkable how much inspiration and instruction comes from trying to put thoughts onto paper. Elder Scott taught us a lot about that. Yeah. And I think I may have an opportunity to serve in a hospital as a Spanish medical translator. Oh, great. I speak fluent medicine and pretty good Spanish. (laughs) So there are many service opportunities, of course. One of the ones that i look forward to most and and hope to spend a lot of time in is serving as a cedar in the temple when we have more opportunities to do that hmm. in the salt lake temple is it, uh, Well, you, i'll or? probably be in the bountiful temple or oh, okay. the other temples because although the salt lake temple is our temple yeah it'll be why it's not we will be able <laughs> for some time yeah so i'll find sure. some nearby temple where they can use some help. awesome well, service it, patrons and just workers
0: well this has been So insightful and inspiring for me personally. I know for the audience and I hope, you know, even for your posterity someday, they have this recording to to go to to hear some of these simple uh, but profound uh, leadership principles. So my last question for you, Elder Cornish, is reflecting back on all the various leadership opportunities that you've had leading in in such a Christ-like manner. How How has leading helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ?
1: Because you quickly realize that if you try to do it, if you try to be the focus, if you try to generate the ideas, it fails robustly and repeatedly. When you learn that there is no meaningful, lasting success except as the Lord guides you, you come to understand in an inescapable way your complete dependence on the Savior. I have a lot of people who are dear friends and academics, and a lot of people who don't believe the things we believe. They haven't had the experiences that we've had. And I am inclined to say to them, your lack of experience with God does not replace my real and ongoing experiences with God. The lack of evidence is not evidence, but my very real, ongoing, personal, and detailed relationship with God through Christ is real and effective and undeniable. What I know, I know for sure. I know that in in His mercy, when I am sufficiently humble and receptive, He guides me. And I know He loves and guides and blesses anybody who will let Him. And I know that for sure.
0: Thanks for listening. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, make sure to visit LeadingSaints.org to find similar content that will inspire you to be more prepared to lead. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 and we'll send you a link to make it easy to get started. Also, would you mind sending this episode to another person who would find it insightful? Maybe in a text message or an email? It will definitely bless their life.